Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, to gather, to worship you, uh, to hear from your word, and to celebrate your grace towards us, Lord. We thank you uh, for your grace. We pray that we'd have a better understanding of your grace, and we pray that you would continue to bless us. And amen. So today we are uh, continuing our series that we started last week called the GCF Vision. So the vision or the GCF vision is a term that we use a lot, uh, but I'm not sure that we've done entirely a good job of explaining what we mean by it. So this series is an attempt to concisely yet thoroughly explain what the GCF vision is. Uh, So our vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And at the core, I would say there's five of them. Um, Having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel, which we talked about last week. Being grace-based, which we'll talk about today. Being reformed and charismatic. Understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church and having a victorious eschatology. So I'm not at all saying that there's no churches that have these things, but most churches don't have all of them. Some churches do well or very well at one or two, and others do well at a different one or two. But very few churches have all five of these things. But I believe, by God's grace, the church will discover and restore these things, because it's something that God wants to happen. And I think that there's good odds that having all five of these together is going to become more and more commonplace over the next few decades. So the GCF vision is a vision of restoration. We believe that the early church had all five of these aspects and that God wants to restore them to his church. And therefore, we're seeking to rediscover and restore these aspects of biblical Christianity in our own lives and to model them for others as well. So that's the intro to this series. Um, But anyways, today's sermon is about the second point number two, being grace-based. So being grace-based is also something we talk about a lot. But again, uh, I want to make sure that we have a good understanding of what it actually means and that it's not just a term we use. By being grace-based, I mean having a biblical understanding of God's grace and applying that understanding to our outlook on everything in life our outlook on how we think about things and how we make decisions, our attitudes and our actions. So there are six ideas that I think we need to have a good understanding of if we want to have a grace-based Christianity. And we're going to cover all six of those ideas today. And they are in the handout in your bulletin. So the first idea... What is grace? Um, We should know what grace is. So I think the most common definition of grace is unmerited favor. And that is definitely true. God's grace towards us is unmerited favor. God has favor towards us, and we most definitely have not merited it. That is his grace. So often in the scriptures, the term grace is used to describe unmerited favor. But there's also another way that the term grace is frequently used in the scriptures, very frequently, as we'll see. Uh, The term grace is frequently used to describe divine empowerment and divine enablement. And as you might have guessed, it's divine empowerment and enablement that we don't deserve. 
But it, it is very frequently, the term grace is very frequently used uh, to describe divine empowerment and divine enablement. Uh, and we're going to look, look at that. So let's look at Acts 18, verse 27. We're going to be jumping around a lot today in the scriptures. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So when it says grace, it's not merely talking about God giving them favor. It's talking about enablement through grace, through God's divine empowerment. They believed when they would not have otherwise done so. That's clearly, you know, the, what the connotation is meant to be when it uses grace in that sentence. Let's look at Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and that many become defiled. So he's writing to the church, right? The writer of Hebrews is writing to the church. So he's not saying, see to it that no one fails to obtain the favor of God. The church has God's favor. He's saying, see to it that no one fails to obtain the divine empowerment of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. He's saying that we need God's divine empowerment, God's grace, in order to avoid roots of bitterness springing up and causing trouble. Let's look at James 4.6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God doesn't love humble people more than proud people. This is talking about empowerment. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 13.9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which... Um, have not benefited those devoted to them. So he's talking about grace being something that strengthens you, something that empowers you. Uh, Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. This is Paul talking about the any of them other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's talking about empowerment, divine empowerment, God's power working within him through the Holy Spirit. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For God's power is best shown in human weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He's talking about God's power is sufficient for him. It's okay that Paul is beset with many weaknesses because God's divine empowerment is sufficient. And lastly, let's look at 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He's not telling you to grow in the favor of God or to get God to love you more. 
You can't do that. It's impossible. He's saying to grow in your level of empowerment. Grow in how much you rely upon God. So it's very frequently in the scriptures that the term grace is used not only to talk about unmerited favor, but to talk about enablement and empowerment that we don't deserve. It is throughout the New Testament. So we were told to grow in grace, to grow in divine empowerment. How do we do that? Well, God has given us uh, certain ways that we can access his divine empowerment, that we can access his grace, and, uh, and we call those means of grace. And there's uh, four of them that I want to point out that I would call means of grace. The first one is God's word. Let's look at Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, you know, Paul mentions, he calls the scripture the word of God's grace. It is the word of his divine enablement, his divine empowerment. The scriptures give us grace. They give us divine empowerment. And, you know, then he goes on to talk about that in more detail, saying that the scriptures are able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's also look at 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter is saying that scripture enables us to grow. It gives us enablement. It gives us empowerment. And then... Lastly, let's look at Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all who are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the scripture has power. He says it's living and active and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Spirit helps us be convicted of sins that we wouldn't otherwise be convicted of, or the Word does, the Scriptures do. So let's talk about how the Scriptures help us on a practical level. They're means of grace, they're means of divine empowerment, divine enablement. So what do they, you know, what do they do? Uh, For one thing, God's word convicts us of sin, as we just looked at in Hebrews. It's able to reveal to us the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The ASV says it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Some translations use the word judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which is to say not only does it help you know or see what the thoughts and intentions of your heart are, but helps you discern whether or not they're good or bad. Because that's what it means to judge, to know whether something's good or bad. Not just what it is, but whether it's good or bad. So the scriptures convict us of sin, and that is something we need. Also, the scriptures give us wisdom. Let's look at Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's word gives us wisdom uh, for everyday life and for how we are to go about life as Christians and what we need to know. Not only that, but God's word strengthens us spiritually. Let's look at Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we've talked about this before, that scripture, a word picture for scripture is food. It's compared to bread. It's compared to milk. It's compared to meat. And that's because it provides nourishment. Food, physical food, provides physical nourishment. It gives physical energy. If you don't eat, you don't have energy. You'll notice it in about 12 hours, maybe less. (laughs) And it's harder to function in any capacity. And spiritual food gives us spiritual energy, empowerment, grace. And it makes a real and tangible difference. Even if in your daily time reading the scriptures, you're not necessarily learning anything new that you didn't know before, it still makes a difference because God's word has a tangible effect on the human heart. So the word, the scriptures, that's one of the means of grace, one of the ways in which we access God's empowerment. The second one I want to talk about, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of the ways uh, we access God's grace. Uh, The Holy Spirit lives inside of every Christian, and we are commanded to become more filled with the Spirit ongoingly. But let's talk about how the Holy Spirit is a means of grace, how we access God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So as Christians, you know, we're still sinners. It is constantly a temptation to gratify the desires of the flesh. And the means by which God gives us to not do that, to not gratify the desires of the flesh, is to walk by the Holy Spirit. Or is to walk in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to become more filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's also look at Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It can be really difficult to have love and joy and peace in patience, especially patience. (laughs) How does one acquire these things? They're the fruit of the Spirit. The more filled with the Spirit we are and submitted to the Spirit, the more these things will naturally grow in our lives. The Holy Spirit empowers us for character growth. So the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, interacting with the Holy Spirit, is one of the you know, 
means of grace in the Christian life. And the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit helps us and all the things he does that uh, empower us. Let's look at Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit gives us power. He gives us empowerment. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. For to one is given through the spirits the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. Paul is talking about the gifts of the spirit in this passage, and two of them, a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. Those are gifts of the spirit that are meant for God's people, that are meant for the church. God desires to give us wisdom and knowledge through his spirit. Let's also look at Luke 12, verses 11 through 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and knowledge that we wouldn't otherwise have if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. And that's something we need to seek him for. That doesn't always happen if we're not seeking him for it, if we're not seeking to rely on God. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Jesus said that uh, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict of sin. And that is something we need because sin is deceitful. And it's, you know, the, the heart is deceitful above all else. It's easy to lie to yourself about your sin to justify it, to rationalize it. But the Holy Spirit convicts us. He also helps us to pray, uh, as Paul says in Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. One of the ways he does this is through praying in tongues, but I believe um, he also helps us by just giving us thoughts or promptings about what we should pray about. Burdens to pray for a certain person on a certain time. So the Holy Spirit, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. He's one of the means of God's grace, one of the ways we access God's divine empowerment. Another one of the means of grace, another... Another one of the ways we access God's divine empowerment is the church. The church is a means of grace. Let's look at Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 through 13. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to a unity of the faith and a of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it says God gave leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The church is a gift. Each member of the church is a gift to the whole church, collectively. 
and God uses us to equip each other and to build each other up. And God specifically uses church leaders, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for, the built, for equipping of the saints. Because the work of the ministry is for the saints. It is for every member of the church. And God gives us the church and the leaders that we might be equipped for it. Let's also look at 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So God has given us all gifts, uh, spiritual gifts and gifts like things that we're skilled at, and we're stewards of God's grace, and we serve one another as stewards of God's grace. So therefore, when we serve one another, we're enabling each other to receive God's grace. We can access God's grace through each other. God has given us gifts to serve each other, to build up each other, so that we can receive God's grace through each other. And God also gives grace to others through us as we are part of his church. Let's also look at Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, when we're gathered as the church, we can experience God's presence, Christ's presence, in a special way that we wouldn't otherwise be able to just by ourselves. So the church is a very important means of God's grace. Not only do the... um, the word and the spirit convict us of sin, but thank God, the church convicts us of sin. Sometimes you don't want to listen to the word or to the spirit. And when you don't want to listen to the word or the spirit, often God will send someone from the church. Not only that, the church encourages us. Let's look at Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another... Every day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you may, will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to encourage and exhort one another. That's a benefit we should be receiving in the church and giving in the church. The church also helps us in times of need. You know, if anyone who's a member of the church falls into hard times financially or with being sick or with a family member being sick, we come alongside and help them. The church edifies us spiritually through being served, but also through serving others. When you serve others, that's edifying to you. That builds you up. That helps you to grow. You can't grow like God wants you to without serving others. And we do that in the church. And the last point I want to make about how the church helps us grow, uh, one of my favorites, God even works the difficulties that we have in the church to turn out for our growth. We need to learn to be patient. How can you learn to be patient without something that requires patience? God will give you things that require patience. God will give you people that require patience. Even mature Christians have relational difficulties with each other. You know, couples that are mature in Christ and have been married for 40 years still have relational problems now and then and need to be patient with each other and love each other. So God even causes the difficulties we have in the church to work out for our growth. So the church is an important means of grace that we need to be relying on. 
And the last thing I would want to point out as a means of grace is prayer. Prayer is a way in which we can access God's grace, God's empowerment. Let's look at Matthew 26, uh, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So, you know, this is Jesus talking the, to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to be crucified. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So prayer can, be, can strengthen us spiritually. It can help us uh, have a guard against temptation. I think there's two ways in which prayer helps us tax us God's grace. One is by praying for things like empowerment and growth and God answering those prayers. But I think even apart from that, um, time spent in prayer has an effect on our spirits, a tangible effect on our spirits that gives us empowerment spiritually. But then there's also just the fact that we can pray for empowerment. We can pray for growth. Paul prayed for that regularly. Let's look at Colossians 1, 9 through 12. And so from the day that we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. These are things that Paul prayed for because he knew that praying for them could cause them to happen when they otherwise wouldn't. There are things, great things, great levels of empowerment and growth that we can access through prayer that won't happen otherwise. And we need that. So if we're going to be growing in grace, as the Bible instructs us, growing in divine empowerment, we need to know how to access that divine empowerment. And the primary means we do that is by the scriptures, by the Holy Spirit, by the church, and by prayer. So we need to understand the means of grace. The next idea uh, we need to understand. Grace is not licentiousness. So a common false doctrine is the idea that grace is opposed to the law, or that because we are under grace, it doesn't matter how we live. But that view is thoroughly unbiblical. Let's look at Jude 1 verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Some translations say who pervert pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness, who deny our Master and Lord, who deny the idea that Christ is Lord by saying you don't need to obey him. If we don't need to obey Christ, he's not Lord. So that view is thoroughly unbiblical. The Bible teaches that the opposite is true, that if we've truly received God's grace, we will seek to follow God's law from our hearts. Let's look at Romans 6, 14 and 15. 
For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So grace causes sin to not have dominion over us. And then Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. The fact that we are under grace does not give us license to sin. It's true that under grace, we don't have to keep the law in order to be righteous before God. We're righteous because of Christ. But the idea that therefore it doesn't matter at all how we live is a total lie. And it's a lie for two reasons. First, because if we actually received grace, we will want to obey God. And if we don't want to obey God, it's just evidence that we haven't received grace. Let's look at 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning or goes on sinning continually. That is, without repenting. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Let's also look at James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it then, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not saying that a person is saved by works. He teaches that a person is saved by faith, by grace. But if a person doesn't seek to obey God, they haven't received grace. If a person is not committed to obeying God in every area of their life, they should question whether or not they're saved. James says very clearly, can that faith save him? So, the first reason, the idea that we don't, it doesn't matter how we live, is because if we've actually received grace, we will seek to obey God. And the second reason is because even though we are under grace, disobedience still has consequences. Let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let's also look at Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So grace is not a license to sin. Rather, grace is God's unmerited favor and is also the divine empowerment to overcome sin and to live godly in Christ. So grace is not licentiousness. We need to understand that. The fourth idea about grace we need to understand. The Christian life is initiated by grace, and it is continued by grace. It's a huge pitfall for Christians to believe that the Christian life is started by grace while failing to see that it's continued by grace. And it's, it's an easy thing to fall into. There are two main lies we fall for in this area. The first one is the idea that God adopted you by grace, but if you want him to keep having favor on you, you need to do the right things. That idea is unbiblical. 
Let's look at Romans 8, 38, verse 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does he list life as one of the things that we would think could separate us from God's love, but that can't? Because life involves sin. Life involves failing. Life involves uh, making mistakes and giving into temptation and sinning. It's what we do, unfortunately. God sanctifies us so that we continually grow in grace and overcome it, but life still involves failures. But that cannot separate us from the love of God. Not only that, but he says, nothing in all creation. You are something in all creation. You're a part of that. You cannot separate you from the love of God, no matter what you do. So the idea that, you know, we get tempted to fall into, and it's easy to fall into, that if we want God to keep having favor on us, we need to do the right things, is unbiblical. And the logic behind that idea is that after you've been saved, if you live godly, then you deserve God's favor. That's the logical outworking of it. If God's going to retract his favor based on how you live, it implies that how you live after becoming a Christian causes you to merit God's favor. And that is an evil idea. It's evil because it's prideful. It's pridefully out of touch with reality. Let's look at Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, a filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We could never, no matter how much obedience we have, merit God's favor. could never do anything to merit God's favor. And to think that we've merited God's favor after coming to Christ is prideful. We ought instead to believe that God adopted us by grace and that he will continue to accept us day to day by grace and because of grace and not because of works. It's very important that we see that. The second lie that we get tempted to fall for, is the idea that God converted you by grace, but now that you're converted, you have strengthened yourself to conquer sin. That idea is unbiblical. Let's look at Galatians 5, 16, and 17. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We still have flesh. We still have a sin nature. And we do not have the strength in and of ourselves to overcome that. We need God's grace. We needed God's grace to move from death to life and becoming Christians. And we need God's grace for every bit of growth as Christians. So we need to understand that the Christian life is initiated by grace and it is continued by grace. We need to understand 
But we need to avoid falling for those two lies that I talked about and that are in your handout. The fifth idea that we need to understand, the importance of grace alone. It's very important that we believe that we are initially saved by grace alone through faith alone and that we continue to be saved by grace alone through faith alone. It is very important. To see how important it is, we should examine the book of Galatians. So in the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to the Galatians primarily because of a concern he has. The Galatians have, there's a teaching that developed in the Galatians, or among the Galatian church, that not only did you need faith to be saved, but you also needed circumcision. And Paul was very, very concerned about that. Let's look at Galatians 1, Galatians 3, 1 through 6, and verse 10. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law and to do them. Paul is saying, if we're in our hearts relying on our good works to be saved, we're under the curse of the law. He says, even if you rely halfway on faith and halfway on works, you're under the curse of the law. Because the Galatians were trying to rely halfway on faith and halfway on works, which is still a reliance on works. He goes further on to say in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that is, if you accept it for the sake of being righteous before God, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That is very serious. Whether or not we trust God to save us by grace alone and not by works at all, through faith alone, is a matter of eternal importance. It has to do with whether a person is a true believer or not. And Paul is very clear about that. He is very concerned for the Galatians. So we need to understand the importance of grace alone. The last idea that we need to understand if we want to be grace-based. How do you apply grace-based thinking to our lives? So there's, there's three ways we need to apply God's grace to our lives. The first is that we should respond graciously to the sins of others. 
And how do we respond graciously to the sins of others? Well, first off, we need to understand that we are not better than they are. Even if others have committed sins that we have not committed and hope to never commit, it's only by God's grace that we haven't. And we have plenty of sins that we have committed, and sin is sin before God. We still have hated God from the depths of our hearts. And we are not better than anyone else, regardless of what their sins are. So we need to understand that we are not better than others as part of responding graciously to the sins of others. We need to forgive them as Christ forgave us. If we truly understand how much we deserve God's wrath and the greatness of his forgiveness towards us, we will want to have forgiveness towards others. But that's not all that responding graciously to the sins of others involves. It can also involve rebuking them as appropriate per situation. Let's remember that grace is empowerment. Forgiveness is part of grace and so is empowerment. We want to empower others to overcome their sin. Let's look at Leviticus 19 verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with him or frankly rebuke him. You shall... You shall frankly reason with him or frankly rebuke your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So responding to others graciously involves forgiveness and involves um, humility, but it also can involve rebuking them because grace is empowerment. How else should we apply grace to our lives? We should respond graciously to our own sins. It's not just that we should respond graciously to the sins of others. We also should respond graciously to our own sins if we're going to be grace-based. And how do we do that? Well, for one thing, understanding that God doesn't love you any less because you've sinned. If you start to think that God has loved you less because you've sinned, that's not grace. That would involve the idea that you've somehow merited God's favor or his love on days when you did obey him. God doesn't love you any less when you sin. We also shouldn't beat ourselves up over our sin. If we respond graciously to ourselves for our own sins, we won't beat ourselves up over sin. But responding graciously to our own sins also involves repenting of our sin and seeking to learn from it. Because grace also is divine empowerment and enablement. We need to repent of our sin, and we should seek to learn from it. If someone's struggling with a sin uh, that they've been struggling with for a while, and they you know, fall to it again, we should consider, how could I do better next time? Your sins is something you can learn from. We should repent of them and learn from them. The third way in which we should apply grace-based thinking to our lives is we should, seek, we should be looking to rely on God for enablement and empowerment in every area of the Christian life, and we should expect to not be able to succeed apart from reliance on him. That is an important part of having grace-based thinking. We should be looking to rely on God in every area of the Christian life, and we should expect to not be able to succeed apart from reliance on him, apart from his empowerment. So we need to understand how to apply grace to our lives, and we need to apply it. We need to do it. 
So that is all I had to say about that. And next time I speak, we'll talk about being reformed and charismatic as we move on in the series about the GCF vision. So let's get to our communion meditation. Today's communion meditation is called Let Us Boast in Christ. So one of the ways we are to respond to God's grace uh, is to learn to boast in him rather than in ourselves. There's a few places the Bible talks about this. But first, let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But it also says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 17, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the Bible talks about not boasting, but it also talks about boasting in the Lord. So what does that mean? What does it mean to boast in the Lord? I think it, by and large, has to do with where we place our confidence. We often think of boasting as having to do with pride, but it also has to do with confidence. I want to compare two examples with a little kid or a little boy at a playground. Young boys love to boast. So there's this kid, there's this boy at a playground, and he meets a group of bullies who are picking on him. Let's say in the first case, he boasts about how he's going to beat them up because he's so tough. That's a boasting in himself. But let's give a second case. And then the second case, he boasts not in himself, but he boasts about how his older brother is going to beat them up if they pick on him. The second example is a type of boasting in someone else, just like we are to boast in Christ. Both of them are boasting because he's confidently proclaiming how his enemies will be defeated. It's a bragging, it's a boasting, it's a saying, I'm going to win and you're going to be crushed. That's boasting. But the first one comes out of arrogance. It comes out of an unrealistic idea that he thinks he can take on these kids twice his size. But the second one comes from a realistic knowledge of the strength and kindness of his older brother. And Christ is our kind and strong older brother. And we are called to boast in him about how he will defeat our enemies. He will defeat sin and Satan and death. And that type of boasting is good. We can boast confidently to our enemies in spiritual warfare saying, my older brother Christ will crush you underneath his feet. So grace doesn't exactly call for no boasting. Rather, it calls for boasting in God, who has saved us and is saving us and will continue to save us. So let's come to the table.